0: medical department, only two go to the bench and we are more than a dozen.
1: We don't train, the only recover. That's the situation. What, preparation, hard work, confidence in overcoming those difficult moments. Today we are still outside Liverpool and we are going to the first part of the medical test.
0: Welcome to this Football, Medicine and Performance podcast. I'm Andrew Shafiq, a Senior Editor at the FMPA and your host for today's podcast. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Mike Davison. Mike has been part of the international sports medicine and performance community for over 20 years. A former strategy and business architecture consultant with Accenture, his professional path diverted into the sports and health industries whilst undertaking his MBA at Oxford University. Since 2002, he has actively worked to professionalise and raise standards within performance and medical departments in sports globally, through the recruitment of diverse talent, the building of global knowledge networks, and practically working with organisations on their people, systems and processes. His passion is to connect people and implement world-leading ideas. He is also academically published in the field of injury epidemiology and prevention of injuries, And is a board member of the football research group that conducts injury and performance analysis studies for uefa he is currently the head of international for isokinetic medical group and an organizational design and professional development consultant for brooklyn nets houston texas and red bull performance today we're going to discuss with mike the past present and future of football medicine so i'd like to welcome mike to the podcast
1: thanks andrew pleasure to be here
0: thanks mike thanks for joining us so We've kind of given a, a bit of a, a an intro there into kind of your, your background, but I suppose moving on from there, do you mind just filtering in to start talking about, you know, where has football medicine really come from?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's a strange background. I think that's the one thing that people tend to raise an eyebrow at. But I suppose I learned in around 2002, 2003, that the team physiotherapist, the team doctor, the team strength and conditioning coach, were generally the people that were one, the longest in a club environment on a day-to-day basis. Secondly, they had the biggest number of touch points in a football club environment. Um, and thirdly, they had the best relationships with the players, which ultimately is the reason that we do what we do. Fast forward a little bit, and my first real experiences in football medicine were kind of. Around the 2007, 2008, 2009 era at Fulham Football Club. So Roy Hodgson was the manager. They went from playing in Perm, I think, in um, early or late, yeah, early August, late July of that season, and then ended up in the Europa League final, having beaten Juventus on the way. And what I understood immediately from that time with Fulham was that availability. And particularly availability of team players in key positions was basically what Football Medicine had a responsibility to do. I guess what's happened since then has been really an explosion in the number of people involved. Maybe a bit more around the diversity of where they've come from. And respectively, also the way in which they're managed from the clubs. So the next experience I had really was at Liverpool. And that Liverpool experience was... Around 2009, 2010, Rafa Benitez was a the coach. Um, they'd finished second in the league with that sort of spine of Rainer, Alonso, Gerard, and Torres. Um, but they were struggling with injuries. I think they had 11 first team injuries um, when I got a call from Christian Perslow, who, who was the ad interim chief executive at the time. Rafa was pulling his hair out. And again, player availability was fundamentally the kind of key performance indicator that the club was struggling with at the time. But they really were struggling with their ratio of staff to players. That, I think, was the fundamental. I remember going in and helping the club, I suppose, not rebuild because they had good people in place. They had the likes of Rob Price. They had Mark Waller. Um, They had a young Chris Morgan there. But what they needed was more support. There was a different dimension to the playing roster. There was, or the squad, there was fifteen or sixteen different nationalities. It wasn't just ten local lads and a few guys from across the Irish Sea. So I remember we moved the. I think the salaries were around seven hundred thousand a year at that point for the department, and we moved it to one point seven million, pretty much overnight. Um, and that was an interesting group because that involved people like. Matt Konopinski, Chris Morgan, Jordan Milsom, uh, Fergus Connolly, Alan McCall, um, Peter Bruckner, Phil Coles, Darren Burgess. And it really is an experiment lasted two years. Um, Kenny Dalgleish came in, had a different idea about it. Um, and that sort of, I think it was, in the end, it was a bit of an experiment, but it set the path really, having followed what had happened at Bolton, sort of seven, eight years ago, eight years before that with Sam Allardyce of resourcing on a much more subspecialist level, resourcing on a, a bigger scale, more people, and then adding in dimensions like Spanish and Portuguese speakers to ensure that the five or six South American players at the time felt like they could connect. So in short, I think it's gone from being small scale where people were often undervalued maybe part-time definitely underpaid um to matching the international dimension of the game be it the managers be it the playing staff be it the relationships with the international teams and of course all of the tv money that's come into it so i think we could pretty much say now that england and i think we can also probably include scotland in that has the most sophisticated football medicine and I would say performance departments anywhere in the world.
0: It's amazing and really interesting to, to hear the, the history and some of the, the names mentioned there and kind of the, some of the experiences that you've mentioned. I suppose that filters into, you know, what, what are some of the key challenges, do you think, in the, in the football medicine and performance field?
1: I mean, ironically, I think potentially there are too many people involved i mean i've been involved in a huge amount of recruitment and i think sometimes i probably got a bit carried away um so i do think that people need to do one of two things they need to come together more so i think that we challenge ourselves about having integrated workflows the word interdisciplinarity is i suppose in vogue but i'm not sure that people really know how to live it out from a mindset and behavioral perspective in the US now, they're talking about transdisciplinarity. Um, I'm not even sure that we've really got past multidisciplinarity. So then we add the coaches in, and then we add the players' voice in, and we have a complex system. And I think that's the bit that we need to face a little bit. We need a little bit more leadership, and that leadership is across the board. Um, for those that have authority and those that don't necessarily have the authority, it has to be through the spine. I think we need to think a little bit more about shared risk taking and who has the responsibility in that risk taking. Um, I think we can play very conservatively at times. I've seen a lot around concussion, not that it disappoints me, but I feel that whilst the doctors have now been empowered to make decisions around concussion, they aren't necessarily in a situ- situation where the psychological safety for them to do that. Um, of course, there are a lot more cameras are a lot more um, commentators, particularly around the concussion. Um, and we haven't even started talking about the women's game where their concussion rates or their reported concussion rates are significantly more than in the men's game. Um, so I think all of this tends to go back to who's really in charge of performance. Do we have a smaller sense of self, which I think we need to have? Um, what is the role of the coach in terms of taking risk? And ultimately, whose data is it? I think we have to accept that it's the player's data. We as a club may be collecting it in that period that we have them as a proverbial asset within the club, but it's their data. They need to own it. They need to understand it better because when they have that education and when they have that accountability and ownership, they'll then perform. Um, we may also have to accept that when they leave, their data may leave with them. We may not own that data on a long-term basis.
0: It's outlined some of the, the important challenges and I suppose how things have changed over time. I mean, on, on the topic of data, it'd be interesting to hear, do you mind just tell us a bit more about your work with the, the Football Research Group and, you know, some of, some of the influence and the importance of, of the data that's come that's come out of the group?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to say is and I suppose we should acknowledge Jan Ekstrand because the group really is, or has been for many years, Jan Ekstrand. And uh, that's not to put down or um, diminish the impact of Martin Hagland and Marcus Walden and Anna Hallen and uh, and Bengston, But it's just to say that a lot of the epidemiology data and the papers published, and we're now looking at around 85 papers, that have been published by the Football Research Group over the last 20 years has been down to to Jan. Um, Jan still has his vigour, Jan still has um, very much a um, desire to contribute, but the chairmanship of the group is now with Marcus. Um, But the work is really still in two areas. The first is epidemiology and looking at time trends, um, looking at where Things are changing, or in fact, really not changing, um, in either injuries in how often they happen, their significance from an injury burden perspective, and then the return to play, return to performance dimension of it. And then we've dug a little bit further under the surface of why it's happening, because ultimately, when you look at the, the trends, they're either flat, apart from the kind of lateral ankle sprains. But when it looks at ACL injuries, or you look at hamstring injuries, as with the recent paper, they're tracking upwards. Um, So that means that even if we've got all this investment, we've got all of these people, we've got more global networking, um, we still haven't solved some of the fundamentals um, around player availability um, and some of the re injury rates. Um, So looking at leadership, looking at communication, Um, And now I've started to look at organisational design and prospectively how that has an impact um, on player availability for matches uh, and training sessions. Um, I think that hamstring injuries and football are fundamentally sexy when it comes to research papers because we released the the last um, paper on hamstring injuries in December and it was already number one in most red papers on BGSM the whole year. Um, I think that just tells you where the appetite in the football medicine kind of industry is. Um, And I think it's now our responsibility to do a bit more in the coach education space and really where there are teams that are performing prospectively better. So in the the pursuit or search of excellence, we should investigate those a little bit more and share the positive stories.
0: That's amazing. And I think you're completely correct in the sense of football and hamstring papers uh, go hand in hand and <laughs> are very sexy. I think I've seen that paper cited more than than any other over the, the last three months or so and for, for rightful reasons. I suppose kind of touching on some of the, the, the discussion points we've discussed previously and your experience in organisational um, design as well as the challenges in football medicine. Um, do you mind just touching a bit on you know how you would go about developing an elite performance and medical environment in football.
1: Oh, it's a good question. I kind of wrestle with it most days. Um, ultimately, people talk about high performance and they talk about winning. And they associate the two. And I'm not sure that's always the case, certainly not on a short-term basis. Um, I think high performance um, it requires fundamentally trust on many levels. And that trust comes from competency. Um, It comes from benevolence. Um, And then it comes from the way that it's structured from a kind of environmental perspective. Um, And I think if people have a mindset and then they display, exhibit those behaviors where there's low ego, there's high levels of collaboration, there's a courageousness in having conversations with your teammates. you need to have a form of radical candor. I tend to soften it a little bit and talk about kind candor. Um, And I think you need to start smashing down walls between sub-departments within medical and performance staff. There's still a little bit too much um, requirement of identity. Um, You are a member of a performance and medical team first and foremost. The second, you may have a secondary discipline But someone talked to me about the other day, interdisciplinarity really is around kind of braiding together the disciplines so you can become an expert because of your interdisciplinarity, not in spite of your interdisciplinarity. So I think that's probably an area where we still got a little bit more work to do. And I think we can talk about talent and football has a lot of talent, particularly in the UK, because we pay for it. it's got a lot of ego to it. So the the last thing we need in an elite medical performance setup is ego. The next thing we need is cohesion. Then we need synchronicity within that cohesion. And then a nice word that, our well, concept that I picked up on last week is collective effervescence. So if you think about an orchestra, um, the way in which that kind of ensemble comes together. Yes, it's a music. It's expression of music. But um, the way that it's um it knows how to move with itself that kind of unison of movement um this kind of collective effervescence which I need to do a little bit more reading around but it kind of comes in my mind around the kind of joy of being in football medicine and performance and if you don't have that joy you don't have that passion um then I don't think you can achieve the high performance kind of piece that you want
0: that's really interesting. I think that's, I mean, personally, one of the key take homes from, I suppose, the pandemic, uh, the the collaboration, not only within football, across disciplines, as you mentioned, but across sport as well. I think we learned a lot from, uh, I mean, personally, at least tennis and golf, who were kind of putting events, mass events on across the globe and the way they were doing things. There was a lot of key take homes, I think, from, from those sports as well and, and collaborating as well with them. Um I suppose going back a step slightly, and you mentioned obviously the you know the your perspective on how when concussion was brought up and you know are we potentially over medicalizing or the the kind of pressure situations. do you mind just you know what what are your thoughts? Do you think there's too much over medicine potentially in 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 football and in sport?
1: Yeah, I mean it's sort of a strange one for me to comment on one because I'm not medically trained. Um, And secondly, I don't work full-time in a in an environment. But what I can observe is not necessarily over medicalization of the industry, although I do think some of the language used can actually hurt. I think it can um, it it needs to be thought about a little bit more. So I think we can actually medicalize problems. Um, But then in terms of the actions, I think the pressure is getting to the industry. I think the agents are starting to take a little bit more um, control in the wider management of the players. Um, I think there are other kind of stakeholder voices that come into the picture. And my sense is that that people are a little bit more risk-averse. And how does that show up? It shows up with prospectively the depth of scanning that's done. During medicals, like pre contractual medicals are now being outsourced in a way that they never were in the past. So I think we start looking for problems at times, prospectively, without knowing the player. You know, if we look at their availability over the past three or four seasons, it'll give us a good indication of how they show up for a team. But then if we put them on a scanner for four and a half or five hours, uh, all body parts not only the cost the cost is one aspect of it it just seems a slightly unnecessary thing to do and it feels like we're doing it to proverbially cover our well as the sh- as the italians would say cover your shoulders um, which is a slightly nicer term to say but i think that dimension and kind of i was always told you know treat the player not scan um i think that's easier said than done because i think scanning technology diagnostics is a hell of a lot better now than it ever was um but i do think that um if in doubt we can over medicalize to make ourselves potentially have a bit of comfort um, or give us a bit more time in a decision making when it isn't always necessarily our decision and then other times um we fail to ask the player and we just go straight into a kind of let's have a consultant from outside who doesn't really know our player, doesn't know our environment, start giving a comment. Um, And I think that's probably where um, I would challenge industry to be a little bit stronger in terms of its belief in itself um, and use the diagnostics and second opinion networks um, as a competitive advantage, not as a crutch to kind of fall back onto.
0: That's really really. So I think sometimes uh, it almost goes back into the statement you said near the near the start of uh, you know it's all it's all about the players really and remembering that that side of it and not getting caught up in some of the some of the other elements that, that can uh, that can sometimes Cloud judgment or influence decision making. Um, it'd be I suppose just to finish on. do you mind just telling us a bit about what we can expect from the as kinetic conference this year. It's back in London. It'd be great to to hear um, what listeners can expect from the conference this year.
1: Well, I hope the first thing is substance. So I think that's the thing that I hope that people would get. I mean, it's the 30th edition. Um, I remember joining the group in 2011. Um, and we just had a, um, a conference in Bologna of 1,700 people with uh, English, Spanish, Italian, and French multi-language um, translation service going on. Uh, and we brought it to London in 2012, to Stamford Bridge, and I think there's been a big evolution in that. I think it, it sort of it sort of is in parallel with what's happened in the industry. There's definitely a coming together globally. Um, I think there's a coming together um, with a, an energy where not only the FIFA Medical Centres of Excellence, the 51 around the world, come together, but other groups that have connected via email, via phone, via Zoom over the last years, you know, come together in the same space. And it's just different being together. So I think there's there's definitely going to be an energy. There'll be science. There'll be field-based experience. There'll be player voices, coaches' voices, uh, that global network. And I think I'm quite proud this year to say that 30% of the faculty are women, which is a big... um, the big thing for us, it's still below 40%, which is often cited as the, um, as the, as, as the magic number to, to hit. But we have 185 people in the faculty. Um, and I think football medicine in particular still has a long way to go when it comes to representation um, on a diversity basis. And that's not just gender, that's also on a, uh, a socioeconomic basis, that's on an ethnicity basis. Um, That's also on an age basis sometimes as well. Um, And the other thing is that we have just under 40% new speakers as well. So um, this isn't just repeats um, of previous years brought to a different town. Um, This will be some new stuff. And because of COVID um, sort of stalling a little bit, some of the, the data collection, I should hope by the time May comes around, that will have some fresh, pretty much hot off the press um, data coming off in the presentations.
0: Brilliant! And having been to the conference before, I can only recommend to listeners to go this year in uh, in London. One certainly not to be not to be missed. Mike, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, listeners will put up the links for any articles and web links and the Kinetic Conference that were mentioned in the podcast. If you enjoyed today, please subscribe to the FMPA on our Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple podcast accounts where you can reach all of our podcasts. Alternatively, our podcasts are also available for free via the podcast section of the FMPA website. You've been listening to the Football Medicine and Performance Podcast. Have a great day.